Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap. Today is Monday, May 17th. Tech stocks are up, lots of in-store mask mandates are down, and we're focused on the growing push to legalize psychedelics. May is Mental Health Month in the U.S., where the NIH estimates that nearly one in five adults lives with a mental illness. But you'd be pretty hard-pressed to find anyone who thinks the U.S. mental health care system is a well-oiled machine. The biggest problem, of course, is accessibility. As you might know, booking an appointment with a therapist can be kind of like the early days of trying to get a vaccine, and in some geographies, even tougher. But there's also a reality that existing treatments don't always work including pharmaceuticals, which is why a group of scientists and entrepreneurs are pushing U.S. regulators to approve the use of certain psychedelics, including LSD and MDMA. Three things to know. First, clinical research on psychedelics to treat mental illness isn't a new thing. It's been going on for decades. What has changed, though, is that a group of companies has sprung up to exclusively focus on it, and they're getting significant support from big Wall Street investors. In fact, two of them are already publicly traded, including one called MindMed, whose CEO we'll speak to in a moment. A third one, backed by Peter Thiel, just filed for an IPO of its own. Two, these companies are not agitating for recreational psychedelics to be legalized. This is about creating a pathway for FDA approval of what would be prescription drugs likely taken under medical supervision. Three, if and when this rises higher in the political zeitgeist, don't be surprised to find some interesting partisan bedfellows. Mental health issues, particularly for veterans, rarely fall along party lines. So in 15 seconds, we want to learn more about why psychedelics could help alleviate some of America's mental health crisis, plus better understand the very treacherous path to legalization with J.R. Ron, CEO of MindMed. But first, this. We're joined now by J.R. Ron, co-founder and CEO of MindMed, So, JR, your resume, you were in financial stuff. You worked at Uber for a while. How do you get into psychedelic drugs? Sort of two areas of why I went into this. First, I was an entrepreneur in Y Combinator sitting in the middle of Silicon Valley, watching all my friends create self-driving vehicle startups and and other AI technologies that were going to put everybody out of work. And I sort of had this vision of like, wow, we're on the verge of the biggest existential crisis in, in human history because we're automating ourselves out of purpose. And at the end of the day, if people couldn't wake up in the morning and have a job, you know, how are they going to be mentally healthy? And so that was like the first theme that I had while I was in Y Combinator, that tech accelerator in California. And then the other one is really deeply personal. I was struggling with anxiety and mental health issues for much of my childhood and adult life, but they really compounded while I was in Silicon Valley. And I was told by a friend that I should seek help through psychedelic-assisted therapy because all the other things that I was using weren't helping me. And I am really a product of the American mental health care system. And so ultimately what I realized after having an experience with, with psychedelics was that these should be regulated medicines and they can have a profound impact on our health and society. Obviously, there are lots of pharmaceuticals for different mental health conditions. There's therapy. Why psychedelics? They enable a reset in patients and the anecdotal evidence and recent scientific findings demonstrates that 
hey, this could actually be the reset that most people need to then embark on a journey of integration afterwards to actually make changes in their life around anxiety, around depression, around addiction. Are there certain people who LSD is not for, by that I mean because of medical conditions or because of certain psychiatric conditions? Yeah, as we recruit for trials, I believe bipolar disorder is one of the things that we screen out for in our clinical trials. That really is going to ultimately be determined by the person who delivers the care, right? We are a drug development company or a technology company, but ultimately doctors deliver care in America. Actually, the FDA does not regulate the delivery of care in the United States. We're going to look to healthcare providers on who should use these and who should not. One thing I would say is, we're not using these so that, you know, you can have a better Burning Man experience. We're ultimately looking at this as how do we put this through the FDA pathway to, to help folks that are suffering from mental illness and addiction? That is our mission. So speaking of doctors and treatment, how would this actually work? I mean, do I just get prescribed something and take it home with me? Is there going to be medical supervision? What, what's your vision of how this would work if it's approved? I believe that the FDA pathway is the most efficient pathway to get a medicine approved in the United States. Ultimately, that influences and dictates how medicines are approved you know, throughout the world. What we see is that we're going to create technologies that help us scale these drugs, that help us amalgamate the amount of therapists and psychiatrists in America and ultimately globally that need to deliver this care. We are just developing the drugs to enable that. I think one of the misunderstandings of psychedelics is that, oh, it's a, you take it, it's a one and done, and it's a panacea. It's psychedelic-assisted therapy, key emphasis on the assisted therapy part, and ultimately that's driven by humans. That's probably one of the few parts of the economy, mental health care, that we can't automate ourselves out of. There is a human connection in all of this, and I think it's extremely important to acknowledge. Is the idea that it would have to, you think, be a one-on-one -on -one therapist to person taking the LSD in their home, maybe via Zoom or telepresence, or do you think it could be one-to-many? Well, let's fast forward a couple of years. I'll give you what my vision is for the future, whether we'll do that in phase one of the launch of one of our potential drugs. I ultimately believe that there will be maybe less qualified folks that are, at, are sitting with patients, hopefully in the comfort of their home or in the countryside, have psychedelic-assisted therapy training and can be there. But that could be medically supervised at some time in the future, maybe by a psychiatrist that's sitting in New York City where there are thousands of psychiatrists. You know, most U.S. counties, 60% of them don't have a psychiatrist present. So I think there's going to have to eventually be some remote monitoring if we really want to scale this to disenfranchised communities, because we simply just don't have enough people right now to deal with this cataclysmic event in our mental health. Can I just ask, with that, though, what would be the safeguards, right? So if, if the person in New York City is watching me and I'm taking something and I'm, say, 300 miles away like I am, if something medically wrong happens with me, what then? They're not in my room. They're not even close to me. Well, what I'm trying to look forward towards is, is something that's scalable. And so if you have, for example, an EMT, you know, that's also trained in psychedelic-assisted therapy. EMTs are like our first line of care, right? And so that might be a solution. I'm not saying that's day one of psychedelic-assisted therapy, but with 40% of the population suffering from some form of mental illness or addiction, we're going to have to really think about scalability here. The obvious corollary here is cannabis in terms of legalization. Do you believe that the push to legalize cannabis has been good or bad or indifferent for the push to legalize psychedelics? I think it was a great launch pad to what our nascent industry has become. The fact is, though, 
Cannabis and psychedelics are vastly different industries. Cannabis is predominantly focused on a recreational market. I think there was sort of a pseudo-medicalization market that sort of morphed into a recreational market. The one true like outlier there was GW, right? GW Pharma that ended, I think, being sold to Jazz for like $7 billion. They took a very FDA approach and pathway. And I think that we want to, in many ways, mimic that same pathway. This is, you know, yes, these are Schedule One substance. We admit that they have a history, but let's give them a new light. But let's do it in a regulated manner that our society and our government can understand. So you're not somebody who pushes or supports decriminalizing LSD across the board? I think decriminalization and legalization are two vastly different things. Do I think that folks should go to jail for possessing LSD? Probably not. I don't think we should criminalize it. I think it creates more problems for society. Do I think legalizing it outright is the right approach either? No, I think that these substances need to be controlled in a different manner than water, for example. They need to have a set and setting. They need to have a system. I think, quite frankly, the best way to test for their safety and efficacy is through the FDA at a federal level. I don't want to create a niche company you know, working in a niche industry that can't provide accessibility across all 50 states. The FDA pathway allows us to do that. And, that, and by the way, I think that's what, a big reason why Wall Street and, and other investors are backing us, because they see that scalability in the business model that might not have existed in the cannabis industry. Medical marijuana, for the most part, is not reimbursable. Is your expectation for this to work, for MindMed to work, that your treatments would have to be reimbursable? Completely. And by the way, we're going to have to look at different models of how we reimburse for mental health care and behavioral health in the United States. The way that we currently reimburse for it, three and a half trillion dollars was spent on healthcare in the United States. So that accounts for 18% of our GDP. We spend less than 10% of that on our mental health. That's scary because these are very vast and big problems. So MindMed is going to have to figure that out. We're going to have to figure out how a value-based care model could work for psychedelics. And so reimbursement is, is a big part of the battle. And yes, I do not want to see that psychedelics are just a fee-for-service model that are available for rich people. Jerry, our final question for you. You told me in a conversation about a month or two ago that when you first tried to get your company funded by venture capitalists, you got laughed out of the room the minute you said the word LSD. I assume you have had conversations with politicians or regulators here around D.C. What's their reaction when you bring this up? I think the one rallying point in America right now, because there's not many, is our mental health. Like people understand that this is an issue and that we need new solutions. And so like I've had some conservative politicians give the big thumbs up around psychedelics. And I think that's really positive because let's focus on the mission and not the substance. J.R. Ron, CEO of MindMed. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Welcome back. What we're watching today is taxes because they're due today. You might recall the IRS extended the normal April 15th tax deadline because of COVID and most states followed suit. But if you're somebody who procrastinated, this is it. All that paperwork must be done before you hit the pillow tonight, whether you do it digitally or via U.S. Post. But there is a bright spot in what's normally a depressing day, at least for parents. The White House announced this morning that that expanded monthly child tax credit, which was part of the recent COVID relief package, will begin hitting bank accounts on July 15th. It's expected to cover around 88% of the country's children, or 39 million households, providing $300 per month per kids up to age five and $250 for kids between the ages of six and 17. So that works out if you've got two young kids, 
to more than $7,000 per year new tax credits, but don't let your kids know because they will quickly find a use for it. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Naomi Shaven, Sabina Singani, Justin Kaufman, and Jeannie Montalvo. If you haven't yet left us a review, please do so. And be sure to follow or subscribe to the podcast. Have a great national Walnut Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.